0: Hi, everyone. It is Sarah here today, and I've popped on to do a solo sort of mini episode with Nicole's blessing, of course. The topic that I would like to talk about today, and I think it's really important, I've sort of mentioned it or alluded to it so far throughout some of the past episodes, is discussing uh, the connection to intergenerational trauma and the impacts of colonialism, and how that is related to part of our story. And I want to preface that by saying that I use, I don't use those terms lately. And it's only been in the last couple of years that I've really acknowledged and accepted that part of our experience is due to these Subjects. So, if you're unfamiliar with these terms, um, the intergenerational trauma is—it's been a term that's been used quite a bit in the last few years, especially within the Canadian context. Uh, when the the children were discovered in Kamloops last year or the year before, the 215 children at the site of historical residential schools. So, residential schools were basically internment camps for Indigenous children. At some point in Canadian history, uh, the federal government thought it would be a great idea to assimilate First Nations, Métis, Inuit people into Canadian culture and society. And the method to do that was removing children from their families and communities against everyone's wishes and placing them in uh, institutions They called them residential schools. They were often run by the Catholic Church, but other churches were involved as well. And the children were forbidden from being with their siblings, speaking their language. They didn't see their family for up to 10 months out of the year. Sometimes they never saw them again. And what happened in the residential schools was not a whole lot of learning and it was a whole lot of trauma. So there was abuse, um, physical, sexual, emotional, neglect, physical neglect. Children were used as uh, <clears throat> test subjects, I suppose, in, in scientific experiments and health experiments. So testing drugs, testing the, uh, the impacts of starvation, for example. So intergenerational trauma has been a, u- a term used to explain and understand that while this happened generations ago, and I will get to the fact that, that it really wasn't that long ago, that the following generations of children that, that came from, you know, of their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents had gone to residential school, the impacts still continue to the following generations hence the term intergenerational trauma this is one impact of colonialism there's a whole lot that i could probably do a series on but i want to just do like a brief like overview on that and how um i recognize the impact that that these have had on our family i also want to start by Acknowledging that, you know, what I what I do share today, I have been struggling with because part of that is, part of this is not all of our story. I recognize that, you know, my mom likely does have her own pain and trauma, whether she's gotten to a place of acknowledging or accepting that or understanding it, I can't really say. I do have empathy for her. And, and I also think it's important that, that that's not the whole um, explanation for some of our experience as well. It's only part of it. I also want to say that I do also struggle with like, how I'm going through my healing process and how things have like where we're at right now with not having any contact and me talking about this in a public way. I know that that's likely not to some people seen as like a good way to go about it. I don't know. And I don't don't necessarily have to defend myself. I just, I recognize that I I am, I do struggle with, you know, am I doing this the right way or should I consider that any further? Because for me, I find it helpful to talk about mostly because I want other people that might not have put words to it yet that, that identify with some of this to find some like commonality and community and strength hearing that so yeah so i talked about residential schools i will preface it by saying um our mom did not attend a residential school another policy of assimilation or an impact of colonialism in addition to residential schools was a term called the 60s scoop so again for non-canadian listeners or maybe those that aren't as familiar the 60s scoop was like as the residential schools were shifting in that policy and and moving away from like putting kids in a, a school far from their communities run by the church the government decided that through using the child welfare system that they would just across the board have social workers move in and take First Nations, Inuit, Métis children from their families and put them in, adopt them out or put them in foster care to white families. Uh, the reason for that, and I, I'm not defending, I'm not <clears throat> in agreement with this. I just want to say like the government's reason, reasoning behind this was that they didn't feel that Indigenous families or parents were capable of parenting. And this is after, you know, several generations of residential school and abuse and trauma. So Uh, it was a system that was set up to fail and continues to this day. So the 60 scoop is a broad term for a period of time that sort of like gained momentum in the sixties. That was sort of the height of the, the policy where children were removed, but it did happen earlier and it unfortunately has continued. So, um, so this, yeah. So children being adopted out or moved into foster care. Currently, um, there are more Indigenous children in foster care than there were ever in um, residential schools. So modern, in the modern context, people have have termed or coined the term the millennial scoop because it does continue to this day. The irony is that I am now in social work. I specifically did my education in Indigenous social work, so it's important to me that I approach my practice in an anti-oppressive and decolonial way and that I'm looking through an Indigenous lens because while I had no interest in working in child protection or child welfare or child and family services, I think that this life experience has brought me back to it in in a way that I am able to contextualize the experiences through some of my own experience and really wanting to like walk alongside families, indigenous families, to find healing and their culture and their community so that there there is no question of who they are and where they belong. So our mom was not technically um scooped by social workers, I don't believe. She was uh, play, like I think she was placed for adoption through a newspaper ad in the classifieds uh, at the age of six months. She was uh, adopted or taken up by a family that has been very loving and they're non-Indigenous. And I still like I love Nicole and I love our cousins and our aunt and uncle. Our grandparents are, are long gone now. Um, But my mom was raised by a a white family far from her home community. She was raised in Alberta. And I don't think, and this was like in the late 40s throughout the 50s. So, you know, at this time, Indigenous people, women in particular, were not even recognized as Canadian citizens. They couldn't vote. Um, There was, you know... Child or the 60s scoop and residential schools were still active throughout Canada. So being a brown person in the 50s growing up was likely not really easy. And I understand that. And I think my mom was in a loving home. And I can't speak to her personal experience, but I can understand that it it must have been difficult and not knowing like you know seeing yourself one way and not fitting in with your extended family or maybe your peers and and not really like not knowing your your identity right so i think that that definitely plays a part into the challenges that maybe my mom has carried with her throughout her life. I don't know. We never knew her biological mom like my grandmother. And I think that it's possible that she was a in residential school or had her own colonial trauma based on the lifestyle we understood or we understand that she may have lived. My mom does have a number of of siblings that some of them she's met later in life and we've met. Uh, Some of them did grow up in foster care. Some of them are adopted to different, you know, white families. Some of them are missing. We're not sure if they're alive or not. So that really is, that is an, an example of what some of these policies have, have done, right? They fractured families and has created a whole like politics of identity not knowing who you are adoption in itself and i don't have i think adoption is great if it's for you i have nothing wrong with adoption when it's when it's done in a way where there isn't a lot of choice and the goal is to and and this is a this is a term that is not mine, but it is well known within like understanding this, these topics, but it's like removing the Indian from the child. That's a, that was a historical Canadian federal policy was remove the Indian from the child. And that's why they created residential schools. That's why they did 60 scoop. And so when there's a whole network or foundation of, of removing or fracturing families in such a way, the following generations experience that. And and through many ways, right? Like when you grow up in these traumatic scenarios, and you don't have the coping skills, or the parenting skills, then it, it trickles down and down and down. And so I do believe that you know my mom has experienced that and in turn we have and it's not like i'm this is a past because this happened i think it mostly means for me that i can better understand why some of the decisions or you know yeah i guess like parenting decisions or or lack of decisions occurred right because I, I think that even if there was a loving and supportive adoptive family, there's still like, a, like that blood memory within us, right, that we still have, you know, our biological like connection to where we come from. And having that ripped away and never getting to see them again would create pain and trauma and and avoid in in who we are. So I think that I think that for my mom like based on like the period that she grew up in and the era and and the culture of her life may have resulted in like internalized racism right like not knowing like i don't even think she really recognized or understood that she was a first nations person until much later in life like at least like a teenager i don't even know and i think that in itself it's like if you you see her it's like oh of course she is but when it's not talked about it's considered shameful imagine how that how you carry that with you and that's not unique to to her i think lots of people that have experienced you know either the child welfare system adoption residential schools struggle with that in like internalized racism the lateral violence like just not knowing And and then the judgment from people that are not Indigenous, assuming that all First Nations people don't know how to be parents and are all drunks and are all, like, live in poverty and all of the things that come with that. And I guess the whole point of me rambling about this is I think it's important that people, if you're not as, like, Read on these subjects that it's important to know that that this these systems were designed to assimilate Indigenous people into Canadian society under impossible conditions. You know, going to residential school, or at, at one point it was it was illegal for Indigenous people in Canada to speak their language. To Practice ceremony, so to gather for like songs and drumming and dancing like powwows or I guess powwows is more modern, but like the Sundance ceremony or potlatching here on the West Coast, like those were, that was illegal to do. So think about that for a minute on something that you hold dear, whether it's your faith, if you, you know, have faith and believe in a higher power Uh, or even just the language that you speak, imagine that being, becoming illegal tomorrow. And then add to that your children being taken away and you may or may not see them again. And imagine how you will cope with that and imagine your child trying to reconcile that and figure out like why this is happening and then when they can return, if they can return, how they will fit back into the community when they've lost their language, when they've lost their their understanding of like the, the community culture and, and teaching. So it's something that it impacts several generations. And I think I was uncomfortable making a claim to this because i I still struggle with my own identity politics and and what I mean by that is um, the, you know, part of these this policies of assimilation, that's what I call this, is like the government also, when they, you know determine if indigenous women are actually legal people, if people if indigenous people can vote, where, the children should go to school, if at all, when they get adopted out. Add to that, that the federal government determined who could be Indigenous based on a complicated series of like marriage and generational cutoffs. And that's like in the Indian Act. So the Indian Act is like basically what determines if someone is a registered Indian and those, those are not my words, but that's how it's written. And if you qualify for status in Canada. So in the U.S., a, a similar comparison would be like blood quantum. When people ask like, oh, are, are you like one eighth whatever or a quarter of this? And so those like fractions and divisions and and labels of like how indigenous you might be are because of the federal government's policy to again limit how many first nations or indigenous people exist in Canada. And the whole point is to limit that to sort of like dwindle it out. And through these policies, they have a cutoff on like if you marry a non first nations or have children with a non first nations people, it, decreases and so on, but it's, it's anyway, personally, I think it's bullshit. So it's, it's tricky because being removed from culture and community and then learning about this later in life, it's, it's, I struggle personally with like coming off as an imposter when I've known that I'm Part of my culture is First Nations since I was young. I don't, I'm white passing, so I don't necessarily look like a First Nations person. I didn't grow up near our community. I don't know elders. I mean, I do now, but I didn't know, like, I didn't know any teachings about what it means to be a Simshian person until later in life. And it's, it's challenging to for me to make any claims about this, because I'm still getting comfortable with who, like, with who I am and accepting that, that, yeah, this is part of our story. And um, I think I'm a lot further along in that because of my education and the work that I do than Nicole is, and she acknowledges that too. And that's why she's like, you should do this episode. (laughs) So, yeah, I I just think it's important to talk about that. I mean, there's so much so much more in this discussion, and uh, I'll probably do a follow up on it. But I I wanted to sort of give a bit of a an overview on how this impacts us, as you know, we are we are part First Nations people. I am not status according to the government, so. In the government's eyes, um, they've cut us off at my mom because of she married a white person and had children. So, again, despite that, I continue to learn our language, learn about our culture, and bring it back because for me, it's important to to heal and honor that part of my ancestry and my family. I guess I want to break that cycle of, of trauma and colonial violence by bringing the words of our ancestors back to us, by learning our songs, learning about our stories, which I have been doing for quite a while now. And for me, I find it very healing. As soon as I connected with people from our nation and I'm speaking in our language with people, it just, it just filled my heart with so much joy. And like, I just felt like I was getting a big virtual hug from all of my like friends and family that I've met on this journey. And, uh, I'll, I'll, this short but I just want to share that the last time I did speak to my mom was going on a year ago it was like last June I think during the height of all that that chaos we've alluded to that was going on at the time and and it's difficult for me to be vulnerable with my parents anymore because I'm so guarded and so concerned about getting hurt again But I I kind of gave it one last ditch effort with her and just I was I had worked to find um, a treatment place like a like a bed or a vacancy in a treatment facility in our territory, uh, our traditional territory that that is an indigenous treatment center that includes culture and healing and wellness and you know it, it would share and like it would look through both lenses of like like a treatment facility as well as like a holistic indigenous approach to that and at the time it seemed like she was open to it but I guess it was lip service and you you can't make somebody do something like that if they're not ready but I do remember like talking and sharing and being like, you know, I want you to feel your culture and your people wrap you up like they've been doing for me, because that feeling has been incredible. And through all of this and how painful it's been, I feel some strength from those that I've met and that continue to lift me up in in culture and language and the teachings I've gathered along the way. And I told her, I I said, I want you to feel that. I want you to feel the strength of your people because for me it's been life changing. And I, I told her she deserved that. And yeah, I guess that was the last time we talked and she opted not to go and, you know, People are going to do what they're going to do. And I hope that uh, I still have that hope for her, like through all this, the pain and the hurt and how much I, I do still long for that. I, I hope that she gets the chance to to feel what it's like to really honor and acknowledge being an Indigenous person today because we are stronger and bringing it back and speaking the words and i just find i just find there's a lot of strength and and healing properties there so yeah so that's my my little intro on how intergenerational trauma the impacts of colonialism and the policies of assimilation have impacted our story and yeah, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. If you have questions, um, I feel like I didn't write anything down. I'm just sort of like rambling. That's my style. And that's so cringy to Nicole because she's so much more organized than me. Um, But I would love to hear your, you know, your feedback or questions. If you want to hear more about this or have a bit of a conversation, because it is something I'm really passionate about. I just completed a like a degree in indigenous social work specifically f- because of this experience and my passion for uh, decolonization and anti-oppressive practice. So I will leave it there for today. I hope you're all doing well. And I hope this wasn't too boring with just me blabbing and not having that discourse with my sister Uh, And I hope you all take really good care. Hey, thanks for listening today. You can listen to Parentified Podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. You can also check out our Instagram at Parentified Podcast. Feel free to subscribe, share, rate, or reach out with questions and suggestions for further episodes. Talk to you next time.